Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Good Grief. My name is Dr. Christine Malone, and in this podcast, we talk about trauma, tragedy, and survival. In each episode, I will interview someone that has gone through grief in some way, and we will discuss the impact it has had on their life. By sharing these stories, we hope that others won't feel alone should they be going through similar situations. Enjoy. Okay, listeners, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. My guest is going to talk about a living with a cancer diagnosis. So guest, if you would introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about your background. Christine, thanks for having me on. I'm really looking forward to talking with you today. My name is, is Terry Tucker. I am an 11 and a half year now uh, cancer. I call myself a warrior because I'm still battling the disease. My cancer experience goes back to when I graduated from college. I moved home to find a job. I was actually the first person in my family to graduate from college, you know, and I'm all set to make my mark on the world with my newly obtained business administration degree and realized I don't know a thing about business. Fortunately, I was able to find that first job in the corporate headquarters of Wendy's International in their marketing department. That was the good news. The bad news was I lived with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mother care for my grandmother and my father who were both dying of different forms of cancer. Fast forward to 2012, uh, I'm a girls high school basketball coach and I also have a, a consulting business on the side and I have a callus break open on the bottom of my foot right below my third toe. Eventually go to a podiatrist, podiatrist friend of mine, takes an x-ray, says, Terry, I think you have a cyst in there, I can cut it out. And he does. And he shows it to me. It's just a little gelatin sack with some white fat in it. No dark spots, no blood, nothing that gave either one of us concern. But fortunately or unfortunately, he sent it off to pathology to have it looked at. And then two weeks later, I get the call that most of us, I think, in our lives dread. And he, the more difficulty, you know, being a friend, the more difficulty he was having explaining to me, the more frightened I was becoming until finally he just laid it out for me. He said, Tara, I've been a doctor for 25 years. I have never seen the form of cancer that you have. You have this incredibly rare form of melanoma that appears on the bottom of the feet or the palms of the hands. And that started my 11, 11 and a half year journey. I was basically told that this was a death sentence. They had no treatment to give me other than surgery. I should be dead in a couple of years. If I got a miracle, I might, I might, might get five years. And I, and I always find it funny now, I was treated at MD Anderson and every year I get a, a letter from the tumor board. And it's, it basically says circle one of these three. Are you alive with cancer? Are you alive without cancer or are you dead? And I keep hanging around because I haven't figured out how to circle number three yet. So you know, well, that's, it, it, that's quite funny. So you didn't do, with, they didn't do chemotherapy, radiation, none of that would have worked for your cancer? No, they, they, this was, you know, when I was diagnosed, I had this this area on my foot, and then eventually there were there was one lymph node that had a microscopic amount of cancer in, in my lymph node. So I had surgery to remove the tumor, to remove all the lymph nodes in my groin, a skin graft to close the wound on my uh, on the bottom of my foot, and then my doctor put me on a drug called interferon just to try to kick the can down the road, as she used to say. You know, we're we're going to try to do this. And it was a weekly injection of this drug that gave me severe flu-like symptoms for two to three days every week after I took it. And I did that for almost five years. Oh so imagine God. having the flu every week 
for five years. And it wasn't, oh, I don't feel good. It was, I'm thrown up, I'm achy, I have a fever. I, I mean, it was a bad case of the flu for five years. And the, I guess it's not funny, but I, I kind of look at it as funny is eventually it became so toxic to my body that I ended up in the intensive care unit with a fever of 108 degrees, which is usually not compatible with being alive. So I had to stop it. It was just too toxic to my body. And almost immediately after that, the cancer came back in the exact same spot on my foot where it had presented five years earlier. And that necessitated the amputation of my left foot in 2018, worked its way up my leg into my shin, two more surgeries in 2019. And then in the middle of the COVID pandemic, I found out that my entire lower leg was full of cancer. I had to have my left leg amputated above the knee and I have tumors in my lungs, which I'm still being treated for every three weeks. And I know this sounds like a dark and ugly journey, and it certainly has been, but I'll, I'll tell you two things that I've learned from this. Number one, I don't think you really know yourself until you've been tested by some form of adversity in your life. And secondly, I think cancer has made me a better human being. Yeah. It's interesting to hear you say that, because I, as I shared with you before we started recording, I had uh, a breast cancer diagnosis two years ago and um, fear, you know, it, it coming back. And I'm, you know, constantly thinking, oh, there it is. It's coming. Here it is. <laughs> um, and I had to put that out of my head. But I do know that um, that diagnosis uh, certainly helped me see uh, what things are important in life and what aren't. And it also, and I, this sounds really weird because I used to be one of those people that like plan out my life, you know, what I'm going to do within a year, what I'm going to do at those goals, short-term and long-term goals. Um, I don't set the long-term ones anymore, which um, really freed me up, right? It's like, I can, I can make a vacation plan, but I'm not going to worry about what's going on. Cause you know, COVID happened all that where it's like, you never know, you just don't know. So you don't. And, and, and I've had, you know, I've been on podcasts where people say, you know, do you have any goals? No. I, I honestly, at, at this point in my life, I, I really don't, you know, I just, I just gotta, I, I think you really learn to live in the moment. You learn to live in the present. And it, it's something that kind of, I was kind of like you, you know, I was like, where am I going to be five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, most likely in a box somewhere, you know, in a grave, which is, which is fine. You know, the, the, the death, we are, we're all going to die. Everybody dies, but not everybody really lives. So I spent a lot more time now working on the living part and don't worry about the dying part so much. Yeah, I, I, I love how you said that. Tell me about what you call your four truths. Yeah, the four truths are, I, I think there's certainly things that I've come up with over the course of my life, but I think they've sort of been solidified over these last 11 and a half years. Uh, I have them on a post-it note. They're, they're right here in my office. So I, I see them multiple times during the day and they kind of get reinforced in my brain continually. And they're just one sentence each. So here they are. The first one is control your mind or your mind is going to control you. The second one is embrace the pain and the difficulty that we all experience in life and use that pain and difficulty to make you a stronger and more resilient individual. The third one I kind of look at as a sort of a legacy type of truth. And it's this, what you leave behind is what you weave in the hearts of other people. And then the fourth one I think is pretty self-explanatory. As long as you don't quit, you can never be defeated. And I, I sort of call these four truths the, the bedrock of my soul. I just think they're a, they're a good place to try to start to build a quality life off of. Yeah, no, I love those. I love those. Um, and then you've got your three Fs as well, I see on this. 
I do. What has gotten me through these 11 years, the three Fs are faith, family, and friends. I I have a very strong faith in God. And it, it, it's interesting. And, and Christine, you've probably seen this, you know, in, in your professional life, certainly probably in your personal life as well. People start down the road toward a goal and then they, something happens, an impediment gets in their way and they can't get over it around or through it. And they, they quit, they give up, but they don't just give up. They've got to blame somebody, you know, they've got to blame their parents or their boss or their station in life. Very few people take personal responsibility for their own success and happiness. So when people found out I had cancer, they were like, well, who do you blame? I'm like, well, what, do you, what do you mean, who do I blame? It's like, well, you must blame somebody. Say, no, I don't blame anybody. And then they find out I have a faith life. And like, well, you must blame God. And I, I sort of joke. I'm like, I don't think God got up on a Tuesday morning, checked his to-do list and said, hey, Terry Tucker, cancer today. I, I don't. I don't believe that at all, but I, I really do believe he's given me the courage to continue to move through this, this battle. So that's that's the faith part. The family part, I, I'll give you kind of a funny story. Uh, it, it's just my wife and daughter, and I, I I have brothers, and my mother's actually still alive as well. A after I had my leg amputated and I found out I had tumors in my lungs, my doctor wanted to start me on chemotherapy. And I looked at him and I said, is it, is it going to save my life? He said, eh, probably not, but he said it might buy you some more time. And I said, well, if the outcome is going to be the same, I'm not sure I want to go through all the ugliness of chemotherapy. I said, but I'll go home and talk to my family. So I go home and I start to tell my wife and daughter what's going on. And, and our daughter, who was in, I think, her senior year in high school, she's immediately like, all right, we need a family meeting. I'm like, family meeting? There's three of us. It's not like we got a board here or something like that, you know? And so we sit at the kitchen table and individually talk about what it feels like, you know, or what we want for me in terms of chemotherapy. And then when that's done, my, my daughter's like, all right, let's take a vote. How many people want dad to take chemotherapy? And my wife and daughter raised their hand. I'm like, wait a minute, am I getting outvoted for something that I don't want to do? One of the jobs I had in my life was I was a police officer. And I remember back when I was in the police academy and I was learning techniques to defend myself. Our defensive tactics instructor used to have us bring a photograph of the people we love the most to class. And as we were learning these techniques, we were to look at that photograph because he reasoned you will fight harder for the people you love than you will fight for yourself. So I ended up taking chemotherapy, not because I wanted to, but because I love my wife and daughter more than I love myself. And in hindsight, it was the right thing to do. You know, I, I got, it was the bridge that got me to the trial drug that I've been on for the last two and a half years now. And then finally, the last part of that are, are the friends part. And I don't know with your experience with cancer as well, if you've experienced this, but I, you know, there were people when I got cancer that I was 100% sure that would, that would be there with me. You know, they would be in the foxhole. They wouldn't let me, you know, they wouldn't abandon me. They would, they would be in the fight with me that I found were like, ooh, I, I can't do this. You know, I, I, I see myself in you. I see myself at your age having this and I, I can't deal with it. And then there were people who I never thought would be there for me that have been there for me for the last 11 and a half years. And I am incredibly grateful that they are. So those are the three Fs, faith, family, and friends. I, I love it. Yeah, I, I will completely agree with you um, with the whole idea you find out who your true friends are when you go through something of a crisis. And I also completely agree with your comment that it, I think a lot of people who are uncomfortable having that conversation is because they do think of themselves or their spouse or whatever. And if it can happen to you, it can happen to me. And I don't want to think about that. So I don't want to talk to you. So I think that's sad, but um, 
it is it is what it is. And, and yeah, my experience was much the same with both family and and friends that I realized that, you know, this person is here for me and 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 has been and whatever checks on me, whatever sort of thing. So so that's great. So I know you wrote a book. So tell me about your book and um, I'm guessing what it's about. Tell us what it's about and kind of what inspired you to write it. Yeah, the book is called Sustainable Excellence, The Ten Principles to Living Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. And it's really a book that was born out of two conversations that I had. One was with, uh, I, as I mentioned, I used to be a high school basketball coach, was with a player that I had coached who had moved to the area in Colorado where my wife and I live with her fiance. And the four of us had dinner one night. And I remember saying to her after dinner that I was excited that she was living close and I could watch her find and live her purpose. She got real quiet for a while. And then she looked at me and she said, well, coach, what do you think my purpose is? I said, I have absolutely no idea what your purpose is, but that's what your life should be about. Finding the reason you were put on the face of this earth, using your unique gifts and talents and living that reason. So that was one conversation. And then I had a young man reach out to me from college on social media. And he said, what do you think are the most important things that I should learn not to just be successful in my job or in business, but to be successful in life. And, and I didn't want to give him that, you know, get up early, work hard, help others. Not that those aren't important. Those are incredibly important. And I wanted to see if maybe I could go deeper with him. And so I spent some time taking some notes and eventually kind of had these 10 thoughts, these 10 ideas, these 10 principles. And so I sent them to him. And then I stepped back and I was like, well, I got a life story that fits underneath that principle, or I know somebody whose life emulates this principle. So literally during the three to four month period where I was healing, after I had my leg amputated, I sat down at the computer every day and I built stories and the real stories about real people underneath each of the principles. And that's how sustainable excellence came to be awesome story. I'll have to pick up your book. I have a couple books from other guests that I, they sit on my library. Like I gotta get to those, but yeah, that's a great, <laughs> yeah, I, I really like it. So when you, I just want to curiously, you know, over, you know, you said you have your wife and your daughter, I'm guessing the daughter must've been very young then if she's just in high school now, when you were first diagnosed and so Well, on. she she was in high school. Yeah. 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 She's graduated, married, all that now. So. Oh, so she wasn't really super like a child when, when you were diagnosed. No, 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 oh, no. Okay. She was in early high school when I was diagnosed. I was just going to ask you how you dealt with that with a, with a young, young child. But um, even in a high school kid, I'm going to imagine that those could be difficult conversations um, and so on. So um, I don't, I'm just curious, when you, were, you sound like you've just been positive throughout this whole thing. Did you not have an episode of time when you were first diagnosed or when it came back, whatever, where you're kind of, I don't want to bummed out, um, maybe feeling sorry for yourself, maybe feeling, you know, a little bit less positive than you are today? Oh, absolutely. I, I, you know, when I, I think when I was first diagnosed, I went through all the stages that we would associate, you know, with grief. First, it was, well, I can't possibly have this disease, you know, learning from my father's experience. I've done everything right in my life. I mean, I was always an athlete. I played basketball in college. So I, I was an athlete. I, I always ate right. I, I, when my dad died, it was like, I'm having a physical every year and I'm doing whatever the doctor tells me to do in terms of testing. So I'd done all that. But yet I still got this rare form of cancer. And then I, I got to, you get mad. It's like, I can't possibly have this disease. I've done everything right in my life. And then I got to a point where there was sort of a bargaining, I guess, with, with God. It was like, look, you know, our daughter's in high school. Please let me live long enough to see her graduate from high school. And then I, I certainly got down. I, I, I felt sorry for myself. And then I just got to a point where you know, this sucks, 
but I'm going to have to embrace the suck, for lack of a better term. I do not like the cards that I've been dealt, but I'm going to have to play these cards to the best of my ability. And, you know, I'm sure my doctor, there's plenty of times where he and now she have got a different doctor who probably wants to hit me over the head with a two by four. It's like, just shut up and do what I tell you to do. And I'm not like that. I, I mean, I want my life to be shaped by the decisions that I made, not by the ones that somebody else made for me or that I didn't make. And so I always ask questions. Why are we doing this? Why do you, why do you want to do this? And I, I mean, I'll give you an example. Most recently, like we'd like you to have a brain MRI. I said, okay, why? Well, it's been a few years since you've had one. I said, that's not a good enough answer. I, I, I said, you got to give me more than that. I mean, I don't think there's anything cognitively different about me. I, I don't feel anything. I'm not having any deficits. So why do you want to put me through this, this test? And well, it's been a while since you had one. I'm like, that's not a good enough answer. So until you come up with a better answer, I'm not doing it. And, and you know, I'm, I'm 11 and a half years into this fight. I looked at him like, okay, if I have a brain tumor now, what are you going to do? You know, what, you can give me some steroids and tell me to, you know, this will take care of the seizures you're going to have and, and go home and die. Okay, that's fine. But I just don't see the need to. So, so I want to be involved in my healthcare. I want to ask the questions. I want you to be able to explain to me, not in medical ease, but in as a human being, tell me why you want me to do this. Tell me what the benefits are and tell me what the, the deficits are. And, and I'll decide whether I, I want to do it. And I'm fortunate to be at a, a, a teaching hospital. So I have access to a, a cancer pharmacist and stuff like that. And I remember reading an article about these doctors in Portugal that were, were testing something. I don't remember what it was, but found out that DHA, the fatty fish oil, is like a Trojan horse to cancer cells, that they take it up and it kills them. And so I called my pharmacist and I said, hey, I, I want to start taking DHA. What do you think about that? And she said, well, let me go research it and I'll, I'll come back to you. And she came back and she says, Terry, we don't, we don't want you to do it because it can promote bleeding. You had a blood clot in your lung. You're already on a blood thinner. We don't want you to do it. Okay, now that made sense to me. It's like, I understand why you don't want me to do it. So I'm not going to do it. But, and that's, that's what I want, you know, my healthcare to be about. Tell me why we're going to do this or why we're not going to do this. And I'm good with it, but I just don't want to be, and, and I've seen this in a lot of people and you probably have two being in healthcare where people just turn their life over to somebody in a white coat with initials after their name. And it's like, you just tell me what to do and I'll do it. I'm not like that. I, I know certain people are, they feel that comfort. Oh, you went to school, you know what you're doing. I, I feel very confident with my doctor, but at the same time, I want to be involved in this as well. Yeah. You're part of the team, right? So it's kind yeah. of like, you know, that, that's kind of, a, that's a, a different way of thinking about healthcare. I know in our current world, um, with regard to, we we do think of those, the white coats and the docs and the nurses, whatever, they know what they're doing. My expertise is over here um, and so far, but I, I love your your comments. Um, and I think you're going to tell me some of that on my next question, which is, you know, if you had someone with a diagnosis where, you know, it was, it was a cancer that can't really be cured or doesn't really have a treatment to it and so on, you know, what would you recommend you, uh, this person do? I mean, obviously healthcare, but as far as, you know, mental and emotional sort of things. Yeah, I, I love this story. I mean, I think we all have a breaking point in our life, whatever that is, emotional, physical, whatever. But I think that breaking point is so much further down the road than we ever give ourselves credit for. And I'll, I'll sort of tell you a story that, that I, I believe sort of talks to that. Back in the 1950s, there was a professor at Johns Hopkins University that did an experiment with rats. And he took rats and he put them in a tank of water that was over their head. 
and he wanted to see how long the average rat could tread water before it would sink and drown. And the average rat treaded water for about 15 minutes. And just as those rats were getting ready to drown, he reached in, grabbed them, pulled them out, dried them off, and let them rest for a while. And then he put the exact same rats in that exact same tank of water. And the second time around, on average, those rats treaded water for 60 hours. Wow. Think about it. Yeah, first time, 15 minutes. It's, it's not like you start a business and your business is going to fail. You're going to die. It, your life is going to be over. And the second time around, 60, 60 hours, which said to me two things. Number one, the importance of hope in our lives. That, that you have to believe, maybe not today, maybe not next month, maybe not even next year, if you keep doing what you're doing, eventually you'll get to where you want to be. I mean, when I was diagnosed with cancer, like I said, you know, you'll live two years and that's it. It's 11 and a half years now. And they had nothing for me back then other than surgery. Things have developed over these last 11 and a half years in terms of drugs and, and therapies that have helped me. And so that was the first thing I learned, the importance of hope. And the second thing I learned is just how much more our physical bodies can handle than we ever thought they could. We give up, we quit, we, we let go long before our physical body is ever ready to let down. And I think that goes back to the, the one of the four truths, controlling your mind. If you can't callous your mind, it's gonna, it's gonna take over. It's gonna be, oh, I'm terrible, oh, this is, this is horrible. And people always ask me, well, how do you do that? How do you callous your mind? You do something every day, do one thing every day that scares you, that makes you nervous, that makes you uncomfortable, that's potentially embarrassing. It doesn't have to be a big thing. But if you do those, those little things every single day, when the big disasters in life hit us, and they hit us all, we lose somebody who's close to us, we get let go from our job, we find out we have a chronic or a terminal illness, you'll be so much more resilient to handle that when it presents itself. Love that. I just wrote that down because I, I actually, I love that. So um, anything else you want to share before we end today? I'll, I'll end with one story, if you don't mind. I, I had a nurse recently ask me what it was like to have my foot amputated in 2018 and my leg amputated in 2020. And I told her it, it certainly hasn't been easy. I'm six foot eight inches tall. So learning to walk again, falling is not an option from this height. You get hurt when that happens. So what, what I told her, though, was cancer can take all my physical faculties. But cancer can't touch my mind, it can't touch my heart, and it can't touch my soul. And that's who I am. That's who you are, Christine. That's who everybody who's listening to us really is. And we spend so much time, you know, or at least a lot of people do, you know, working on this, this vessel, this body. You know, we, we go to the gym and we got to eat right and we got to get enough rest and we got to reduce stress and we have to do all that stuff. But we never spend the time, I think, that, and, and, and again, I'm not telling you not to do that. You absolutely should do that. But I guess what I am suggesting is spend a little time every day working on who you really are, your heart, your mind, and your soul. We all know that we're going to die, this body's going to decay, and it's going to go away. But your heart, your mind, and your soul, those things are eternal. They're going to last forever. And if you spend time working on them each day, think how amazing that's going to be down the road. Yeah, and that goes with your your third truth of what you leave behind is what you leave in the hearts of other people, which I, I absolutely love that one. So. Well, thank you so much for being my guest today. Uh, you have been uh, a wonderful uh, storyteller. I absolutely love your stories and your your anecdotes. So um, yeah, thank you again. Well, Christine, thanks for having me on. I enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Good Grief. To hear more about my personal story, please pick up a copy of my book, 
The Day I Became the Spider Killer, a memoir of trauma, tragedy, and survival, available in paperback, Kindle, and Audible via Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other online book retailers.